What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farah Jassat. And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high profile speakers in live interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Atalengi and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation, perhaps never before has the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'd be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs £5 a month. Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed. So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And I'll now hand over to my colleague Connor to tell us more about this week's episode. Thank you, Farah, and hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, a producer at Intelligence Squared. And this week we have Rachel Louise Snyder, author of the book no visible bruises, what we don't know about domestic violence, can kill us. Now, this is obviously a very sensitive and important subject, which has gained steam and spotlight since the lockdown as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. And in this episode, Rachel and Helen Lewis confront some misconceptions we have about domestic violence. So we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, I'm Helen Lewis, author and staff writer at The Atlantic. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other online events at intelligencesquared.com. Rachel, I wanted to start with you and, your, and how you came to this, because you outline at the very start of the book, you, you kept seeing this story about domestic violence behind so many other stories that you were covering. So tell me how you came to, to arrive at deciding this was something that needed a book-length treatment. 
Well, we share that origin story because I also thought, you know, oh, I'm I'm an educated feminist. I I know about that, and it it turns out I I didn't. And in fact, I had information that was just outright wrong when it came to domestic violence. So, you know, I had been reporting on stories for back in the 90s we called them women's issues, right? <laughs> I think we now know that they are human rights issues. And, you know, those stories were things like the forced sterilization of Tibetan women or, you know, gang rape um, as a weekend sport by rich, young Khmer, you know, Khmer college men in, in Phnom Penh and stories like that. And domestic violence really intersected with all of those stories. You know, I spent about three weeks in the Kabul prison for women in 2001. And they were all nearly all the women were in there for what we call love crimes, right? They refused to marry their brother in laws after their husbands were killed, or they tried to, you know, run away with someone that they were in love with or something like that. And they were all beaten uh, by, by family members in those situations. And it was, it was, it was a kind of thing where I saw it so often that I didn't even, and I'm embarrassed to say this, I didn't even ask about it. And once I, once I began to realize what I didn't know about domestic violence through one woman in particular, a woman named Suzanne Debuse, who runs uh, something called the Jeannie Geiger crisis center in Massachusetts, I met her just randomly on her brother's driveway one day and I, you know, asked her about her work and what she did and she began to tell me all these things about domestic violence that turned out to be myths that I myself had bought into. Like if you weren't standing at the receiving end of a punch, then domestic violence had nothing to do with you or if things were bad enough victims would just leave or shelters and orders of protection were you know, the best answers we had to domestic violence situations. And that was good enough. I didn't realize that I had been buying into all these myths, but I I really had. And it was, it was shocking, both, you know, sort of intellectually and professionally, but it was also just shocking personally, as a a feminist. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the hardest things is that I, I sense there's almost a reluctance sometimes to look at domestic violence straight in the eye, because it's a bit like, climate change, perhaps, or something like that, right? It's such a huge structural problem that actually acknowledging the full extent of it makes you, you know, I think can make people feel quite apathetic, or certainly that it's, there's just, you know, it's almost natural, and there's nothing they can do about it. You know, I think it makes people feel very disempowered, the sheer scope and extent of it. But uh, I, I let's, let's talk a little bit about, about the in, insane prevalence. So you have this comparison about the idea that, you know, about the numbers. I was so surprised to hear that 80% of hostage situations in the US are domestic violence related. Yeah, I was, I was surprised to learn that myself. I was shocked because of course, popular culture tells us that hostage situations generally involve banks. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. That's the, that's the trope that we all carry. I think, and that's one of the things about, you know, you compared it to climate change. And I think that's a really smart comparison because the fact is, Domestic violence is often the origin story for so much other violence that that we as a society face. And I include, you know, I include a global, I'm speaking here of a global society. I mean, it, 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 it's, you know, the leading cause of homelessness for women. It is the story of, and many of these stories are, are most prevalent in the States, but certainly not limited to the States. It's, you know, it's, 
intersects directly with mass incarceration because 80% of incarcerated men were either victims or witnesses to child abuse. And when you look at women, that number is like 92%. You know, here in the States, we have a problem with mass shootings. More than half of our mass shootings are domestic violence homicides. They begin that way, and then they, they spiral out into the larger community. So, you know, healthcare, taxes, court fees, like there's, there's just a million different ways that domestic violence actually affects all of us as a society. It is overwhelming. I think that the mass shootings thing is one of the ways that I think it's possible to feminists to make the case that this isn't, a, as you say, you know, women's issue. This is a human rights issue. I think I'm right in saying, you know, the Sandy Hook killer started off by killing his mother and then went to the to the school. Um, right. You know, there were norm- numerous instances of someone who will shoot their girlfriend or former girlfriend first, and then that turns into a, a larger kind of rampage. Um, you know, the, the most recent one in Canada, he had all kinds of domestic violence in his background and in fact had tied his his girl, I'm not sure if she was a girlfriend or his ex-girlfriend, but tied her up and then went on his rampage. And there's, there's some investigation into whether or not he was targeting ex-girlfriends and folks who had helped them escape him. Right. And then of course, I mean, America mass shootings feel like a particularly American phenomenon, but here in Britain, you know, the guys who were the Islamist terrorists who drove over the bridge and London carried out the London bridge attacks. One of them, I think, has had a, uh, an ex-wife in a shelter. Another one of them had a conviction for domestic violence. And I remember writing a piece at the time about this thing about the day three story. And it would be like day one terrorist incident. Day two, how did it happen? Day three, oh, by the way, P.S., he has a domestic violence conviction. Yeah. And it felt like we were doing all this kind of hand-wringing about how, you know, what is this ideology that drives men to to commit such atrocious acts? And we were talking a lot about you know, what's the role of Islam? What's the role of fundamentalist religion? What's, you know, how can you separate out the good bits of religion from the bad bits of religion? And and you want to kind of stand at the sidelines screaming, there is also some, you know, another ideology that we should kind of be talking about here as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Misogyny, the ideology of, and, you know, look that we all live, we live in a system of patriarchy, right? We still live in a system of patriarchy. And I would make the argument and others have made it as well that, you know, it's not serving men either. All those, all those, you know, men who carried out those attacks, most of them are no longer living either, right? Mm-hmm. In a murder-suicide, there is a murder and then there is a suicide. So, so it is not serving abusers either. And I, I totally agree with you. You know, Eve Ensler, formerly known as Eve Ensler, now she goes by V. I, I love her line about, you know, this is not a women's issue. This is a men's issue. We're not beating and raping and killing ourselves. But I think one of the things that comes across very strongly in your book is empathy for these abusers. And I felt this, I've been working on a long, long-term piece about perpetrator programs, and it's a really difficult thing to wrestle with that you know in writing, and I'm sure you must have felt in writing it, that there is an instinctive, you know, why are you giving these times that guys the time of day? Shouldn't There's not enough money for the victims. There's not enough attention on the victims. Why do you want to hear from these people? And while I, you know, it, it's a very hard exercise as a journalist or an academic to talk to someone who has done something terrible and think, you had a you had a bad life you know you had a bad life you were dealt a bad hand and i'm not sure how far i can judge you for that and i'm not sure how what is the best method you know how much shame and beating yourself up is actually going to help you to at any point rehabilitate yourself and become a productive member of society yeah you know i did i did have this moment before i began to meet them 
sort of internally where I felt like I might recoil, you know. Um, in fact, in the book, I, I do talk about one guy um, who had killed his whole family. I call In the book, I call him Patrick O'Hanlon. And I spent the whole ride to that prison where he's being held thinking, am I going to shake this guy's hand? I do not want to shake his hand. I mean, I just, I was like really focused on, on whether or not, and it, and it turned out I wasn't allowed to by the prison guard. So I had that take that, that moral conflict taken away from me. But, you know, once you get past the, the, the ways in which they, you know, they tend to minimize their violence and their actions and things like that. Once you get past that, you do begin to see the pain in their own backgrounds. And, you know, I think the key to, to, there's a lot of different keys to any abuser's intervention program that may make it successful. I mean, the jury's a little bit still out on, on whether or not they are successful, but I think one of the keys is, is getting to the, the pain underneath that behavior, but they get kind of stuck there, right? They get stuck in that painful place where they were hurt as children and they act out in violence and they don't sort of become the adult, right? Who says, okay, yes, I had this pain, but here's a different way of being in the world. I'm going to learn to, to intimate rather than, you know, push someone away. I think that's something that came across very strongly is how many of these guys feel very sorry for themselves. You know, they, in their mythology, they are the victim. Or in the case of Patrick, you know, when, so Patrick killed his daughter and then his wife, and that happened not long after he'd retired. He'd lost a huge amount of status. He was doing a job he felt was beneath him on all of that kind of stuff. You can feel also a sort of self-righteousness coming through the way that he, he talks to you. And it reminded me when I interviewed the sons of a, a guy who had killed his wife and then his, his daughter. And they said, well, he didn't leave a suicide note. He left a, a murder note. And it was full of this sort of self-justifying stuff about how, you know, I've never been violent all my life. I'm a nonviolent person. And then he went out and you know, sat under a car with a shotgun and killed two people. And there is an enormous amount of, I think if, if you, if he were still alive to, to tell that story, it would be a story about people who had wronged him. And that yeah. was that was something I felt quite strongly in the story of Patrick as well. He felt that the world had had done him an injustice. Yeah, and he, he in his case his narcissism was pretty epic because he even in prison he's like I'm really being chosen by God. I'm God is really using me. This was you know the murders were all God's plan, and he and he compared himself to Job. And I think in his case there's really clearly you know a diagnosable mental health issue going on. And I think with a, with a lot of other guys, I mean, there's a, there's a man in my book named Dante, Dante Lewis, who is working when I meet him, he's just, he's just out of prison and he's working at an anti-violence program. And he has, you know, a long history of abusing his girlfriend and being in gangs and things like that, but he was really struggling. And he was, he was very honest about the struggle Interestingly, in the book, I, I'm not giving anything away, I don't think, but I don't want to do any spoilers, but <laughs> he winds up back in prison for a parole violation, and I visit him in that prison, and he's still trying to be nonviolent, except that now he's in a prison where none of the other guys are familiar with the program that he's been involved in, and you know, this is seen as sort of culturally suspect. He actually just finally got hold of me two weeks ago. He's out of prison again and still trying to be nonviolent. And I can just see 
I can see the struggle in him because he lives in a world in which that is emasculating, you know? Yeah, I felt that very strong. I think that's one of the reasons that people are very, you know, attached to The Wire as a TV series, because it does show you very well that even if you want to escape, even if you want to climb out of the hole, then there are all these forces that are are pushing back on you. And actually, to some extent, that behavior might have developed as a very good survival mechanism which is interesting because it it reminded me of the fact that you talk you take issue with this idea you know why didn't she leave you know why do uh, victims recant their statements why do they stay and about that idea about that as just a survival mechanism if you in that moment take the sometimes entirely correct decision that the police can't protect you the system can't protect you then what do you you know what's what's left what's left to keep you and your kids alive is kind of just total surrender right and it made yeah. me think of the fact that there's been a thing going around twitter about stockholm syndrome and about the idea that you know the way that we think of that that about people falling in love with their captors is a is a mistelling of what happened in that story it was about one of the hostages who decided that the best thing to do in that situation was to take the side of the person who had the gun that was pointed at her face right not yeah. to take the side of the policeman outside who really couldn't do anything to to save her and it, i think that's something that's quite important for people to understand that people are making not stupid decisions, but in the moment, tactically sensitive decisions about the, their best chance of survival. Absolutely, absolutely. And I love that you brought up Stockholm Syndrome because there is research now that suggests that, that we just had a complete misunderstanding of what that really meant. And you see that in, in my book, I talk about a woman named Michelle Monson Mosher who recants you know, her entire affidavit of you know, a, history, a long history of isolation and abuse and control. And, you know, he had gone so far as to get a rattlesnake from outside their town. And he kept a rattlesnake in a cage in their house as a, as a threat. He would tell her, I'm going to put this in bed with you. I'm going to put this in the shower with you if you do anything to, to piss me off. Right. And that level of control Michelle had tried. She had tried to file for an order of protection. She had tried to call the police. The police were very much like, well, he hasn't hit you. You know, he hasn't. I mean, what do you want us to do? It's, you know, and so she was making, as you say, a very tactical decision because he was her her husband, Rocky, was showing her that every system she would try to get help in he could overpower, he could outsmart, he was, he was more in control. And so her decision to recant was based on really on a, a desperate attempt to survive. The other thing, a detail from that story that I think will stay with me is the fact that he would take the kids away and not tell her where he was taking them. Yeah. Um, which was obviously, in retrospect, knowing what happens, the tragic end to that story, a taunt of, you know, be be careful but you know and I think and then you look at the fact that you know so many women in their situation really fight about access or you know custody of the children and that then in turn makes men feel that further that they're losing control that their family's slipping away from them and that can be a a trigger for family annihilation too that that was very striking I thought yeah you know there's a there's a I mean, the basic philosophy of that is that men kill when they fear they're losing everything and women kill when they fear they're about to be killed. And I think that that you see that time and time again, you see it when you look at a headline that says, you know, murder, suicide, it's almost always accompanied by the word estranged or X 
right? And that is a sort of code for the rest of us to understand how leaving is the most dangerous time. And the the problem is that that is so misunderstood by the larger society. You know, you you hear judges today in courts, magistrates, I think you call them, <laughs> Mm. you know, often saying, well, she could have left if things were bad enough in, in cases where a woman is, is put on trial for killing her abuser. Well, she could have left, you know, the impetus for action seems to always be on the victim always. And that's one of the, the big things I'm trying to upend in the book is that there's no other crime where the impetus for change is on the victim. I can't think of any. Yeah, I think it's very striking when you say, you know, if this were, if these were injuries that were being sustained in kind of bar fights and brawls, then they wouldn't they wouldn't be dismissed. And that's quite a challenge because the whole history of domestic violence as a crime is this idea about, you know, chastisement and a wife is the property of her husband and therefore, you know, if she needs to be disciplined and contained, you know, that can that's you know that's his right to do and it, it does it I mean, I'm fascinated because you talk a bit in the book about the idea that female agency is the kind of you know, is is what this is all about, kind of holding back as a kind of structural mechanism. And it strikes me that actually, I'm I'm not surprised that violence hasn't gone away in the same way that I'm not surprised that online abuse has, you know, has kind of taken the place of low level slangy abuse that you might have got in, in workplaces, because actually, for a whole generation of men, who were maybe brought up in these very traditional gender roles households, they don't have the kind of control over their partners that their fathers could have expected to have, their grandfathers could have been expected to have. Yeah, that's true. I I don't know that I've ever thought about it with quite that framing. I mean, I also think, you know, I also think just our, our cultural, our cultural response is so gendered so often, right? You look at, I mean, both our countries these days are led by, Mm, how do I want to say it? Men with, you know, a very certain way of, of being in the world and acting in the world and expecting the world to sort of, you know, fall under, under its, under the, 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 the you know, the provocation of its orders. And th- that is a very gendered way of being in the world. You know, we, we have cultural norms that are, that are, um, just sort of impressed upon us again and again and again. You know, one of the things I talk about, I wrote a new afterword for the book um, that'll be out in subsequent printings. And one of the things I talk about is the Twilight, I think it was the Twilight series. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I get Twilight and Hunger Games confused, which I guess is a sign of my age, but the Twilight series where (laughs) Robert Pattinson's character watches Kristen Stewart's character as she sleeps and in the books and in the movie, it's positioned as this beautiful, great romantic thing, when in reality, it's super creepy and stalking. And yet we're giving these messages to 14-year-old girls and boys that this is how the world works. So, you know, I see, I guess I see this gendering kind of everywhere in our in our pop culture, in our politics, in our, you know, Every, every, everything that we do when we go about the world is orchestrating our roles for us to some degree. Yeah, I think it's also quite interesting how many women are attracted to that to some extent. So the idea that, you know, these romance narratives that, you know, I, I love you so much, I'll die without you. I, you know, you're the only thing that makes me complete, you know, the, uh, all of that kind of stuff that comes from 
twilighty type stuff, but also, you know, in these weird situations where you have people on, well, men on death row getting hundreds of letters all the time. You talk about Jimmy in the book, who is a possibly reformed former abuser and the kind of intense level of, uh, you know, female attention that he gets on Facebook for his, you know, I've changed posts. Actually, can you talk a little bit more about Jimmy? Because I found him one of the most difficult and interesting characters in the book. Yeah, it's, yes, me too. (laughs) So Jimmy is someone who is a facilitator for an abuser's intervention group inside of a prison where he was once a prisoner. He runs a group called RSVP, Resolve to Stop the Violence Project. And he's a former gangbanger. He's a former pimp. He would openly say that he used rape to keep his girls in line. Just a a nasty, nasty guy. You know, he's covered in tattoos. He's very intimidating looking just physically. And yet now he runs this, this, he's one of the supervisors, in fact, at this abuser's intervention program. And I spent years interviewing him. And the longer I spent with him, the more I was just, I, you know, I, I, I believed in the work he was doing and the authenticity of his work. I believed less in his own, his own narrative about his own story. So I, you know, I called his ex-girlfriend at one point to ask for her version of events and her version of events were very different than his. And, you know, he never spoke to me again after that, after I'd spent years interviewing him and still to this day, hasn't spoken to me. I also think Jimmy's interesting because just as with Dante, who was his coworker, the, he was very open about the struggle and the struggle in fact sort of became his MO you know, like he, like he embodied the struggle because the struggle was in part another way of manipulating women in particular. Um, that was what I felt quite strongly. He'd gone from being kind of alpha male, uh, you know, atop his big pyramid of, of women who did what he wants to now being alpha male, kind of king of the rehab, <laughs> king of the rehabilitated guys. Like I'm the yeah. most rehabilitated guy. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. I'm the, yeah. the star yeah. pupil. And it just, it reminded me so strongly when you get kind of, sometimes feminism attracts men who suddenly decide that they're like king of the feminists, they're the best feminist. And it's, and and, and, and having been kind of totally unaware of the issues before and having come to it through one thing, just kind of flipping suddenly because it's a way of getting a huge amount of claps from women and everybody who goes, it's so great to have a guy talking about these issues. And there is a sort of tension about it, you know, that you kind of want to go, is this person definitely in it to be a foot soldier or have they found a very efficient way to get loads and loads of attention? It's, it's another side of that level of narcissism. And, you know, I mean, it's no accident that one of the researchers in my book says, look, the, you know, these guys who have this level of narcissism actually tend to be very, very successful and they're clustered at the top. I think very, there's very strong arguments to be made that both of our leaders of our countries fit into those same categories. And it's one of the reasons why in the book, I was really careful to say like, you know, Jimmy shouldn't be celebrated for his nonviolence. He shouldn't be celebrated at all. He is simply, you know, to, to be nonviolent in the world is the lowest bar, you know, like, so you're not violent. That's supposed, that's how you're supposed to be. You know, and yet he he gets these accolades from these women on his 
his private social media pages that are like, you're such an inspiration. You're such a great, you're so blah, 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 you know, and there's all this love back and forth. I mean, all of us to some degree have a mythologized sense of life on our social media pages anyway, but um, (laughs) it's it's very interesting to see. Um, And it made me, it made me very skeptical. I have to say. Yeah. And now it's time for a quick break. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Hello, I'm Farajasat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you our loyal podcast listeners, to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, our new subscription service for online interactive events. Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers, from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie, to Mehdi Hassan, Bernadine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much. I'm back with Rachel Louise Snyder, author of No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us. So the other big part of your book, apart from really digging into a couple of these stories and really kind of trying to understand them from the inside out, is really about what we could do differently. And I wanted to start with something very small first. Tell me about the hope card. Oh, the hope card. Yeah, this came out of Michelle's story, actually. Or uh, No, sorry, this came out of a fatality review that was happening around the same time that Michelle's was. So the hope card is, is just simply an order of protection, um, except that it's written on uh, like a credit card size or driver's license sized um, laminated piece of, you know, paper that lists the abuser's picture, the exclusionary zones, the dates that it's active, and victims or survivors can get as many of these hope cards as they want so that they can pass them out, for example, to their kids' teachers, maybe, to say, if you see him lurking around, he's not supposed to be here, or they can pass them out to neighbors. One of Michelle's, and I, I'm not going to give anything away by saying that Michelle Michelle was killed by her husband, Rocky, and he killed their two children as well. You find that out on page one of the book, really. But one of the nights she was killed, one of her neighbors saw him peering in the windows of her house and had that neighbor had the hope card. You know, she may be, Michelle may be alive, could have been alive today. So the hope card is just one of the many tiny innovations that I've seen around the country about like, here's 
stuff that we can do. Here are some things that we can actually do to address the violence in our communities. The other possible chance, perhaps, to stop Rocky, there's an incident when he comes over to her, let me get this right, her, yeah, her stepmother's house, right, where the kids are, and breaks... Her mo- Michelle's mother's house. It's yeah. her mother's house, right, and yeah. breaks down the, the door and shoves her pregnant sister um, and, and drags one of the kids out to the car and then takes her away for mm-hmm. the night. And that's both put in the same docket as um, as Michelle's own claim which means that when when she recounts her statement that gets dropped as well but also very much in the writing of it it's it's in kind of downplayed right it's it's downplayed as if he'd cut you know he'd, he'd sort of shouted a bit and I think the violence of the description that you get from the people involved in it does not at all tally with what you hear in the, the police version of it and it just struck me that, that the very first debate in Britain on domestic violence uh, which I think happened in yeah what happened in the 1970s an MP called Jack Ashley brought a domestic violence bill and the government's response was you know these women don't want to press charges they don't you know they don't talk about it you know enough and actually there was you know he had loads and loads of testimony from women who said you know I was sitting there bleeding in a police station and they weren't interested they weren't writing it down and that is a big part of the story isn't it too that actually and I think there's an extraordinary bit where you talk about the fact that when it was a cop accused of a domestic violence incident his you know the guys from his precinct came over and went you know come on knock it off Steve or whatever Um, and they're joking with him outside the house and then two days later he comes back and and kills his his family that there is a kind of chumminess or a, a dismissal about how serious these incidents are that's right that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the problem is, is it, it, it's a, it's a problem that, that exists today where, you know, just maybe nine months ago, 10 months ago, we had an incident here in the States in, I think it was, it was either Alabama or Mississippi where a congressman punched his wife, punched her. And then the two of them put out a joint statement, like two days later, asking for privacy while they work out their issues. You know, and and it's like that's that's part of the problem is that this is not seen as a crime, and you know the statistics say that violence in and among the culture of police officers is much higher even than mm-hmm. in in civilian society. So, you know that incident where the cops come and say, "Come on, come on, Steve, just cut it out. You know, go home, sleep it off, whatever." You know, or the writing of the report about, um, you know, Rocky breaking into Michelle's mother's house. You know, Michelle's mother was terrified. He left blood all up and down her wall. But the police didn't, you know, they, they acted as if he'd left his key somewhere and so had to break into the house. He didn't, they couldn't even get Christie's age right in the police report. They said she was nine. In fact, she was seven. So there is this, this lackadaisical attitude towards these things a lot of times and they're not seen as first of all they're not seen as um you know on a scale of escalation but they're also just not seen as criminal behavior you know until the 70s all the literature around domestic violence all the research talked about how women are largely responsible for the violence they endure and so when you think of it in that way that you know, that conversation with the MP that you were talking about, that's my lifetime, right? It hasn't been Mm. that long that we have been trying to change this conversation. You know, women and men don't talk about domestic violence because we have created a culture of shame around that and, and blame. 
Like if you're in a domestic violence situation, it's because you've made bad choices in life. That Right. And one of the male domestic violence advocates that I talked to once said that he got a lot of grief for talking about it because, and this is the way he put it, men feel that you're not on their team. And I thought that was really interesting and perhaps reflects on those police officers as well, right? The idea that, you know, it's not a man's place to interfere in another man's home life. That in itself is a huge affront to kind of masculine dignity. Yeah, yeah. You know, you're, the laws, in fact, I, I think that the Castle Doctrine originated in the UK, which says that a man, had, I think it was the 17th century, that a man has a right to defend his castle and everything that he owns within his castle, which at the time included family, wife, children, and those laws, okay, they've given way to a different body of jurisprudence, but you can look at those laws as, as like they're, they're tangible gendered history, right? Canada, in fact, has done a great job because they have rewritten essentially their castle doctrine laws. They've rewritten their self-defense laws to say now that they can, you can take into account, the size, the physical capability, the strength, and domestic violence histories in any self-defense case. And that's what more countries need to do, frankly. And coercive control is a big part of that. It's not, I mean, it's only in the last couple of years that we've had a law on coercive control in, in Britain. I was even then surprised that Evan Stark, who kind of developed a lot of the research around this, said that 20% of relationships where there's domestic violence, there's no physical abuse at all. But then I having think about that, I have heard stories where, you know, what will happen in a relationship is there will be, you know, very early in the relationship, the woman will get shoved down the stairs or beaten very severely. And that's it. You don't, you know, you don't need to do that again, because if you're, and I think this speaks to what you talk about in the book about us assuming that domestic violence perpetrators are kind of constant Hulk smashing, you know, rage addled, you know, people who just can't move through society without just screaming and shouting at everybody, but actually they're often not. They're often people who just have rage that they, they need to take out every so often on one particular person or a control of one particular person that they need to demonstrate to themselves is still intact in order to be able to kind of go on living. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we the research says that only about 20, 25% of abusers fit that vision of rageaholic that we have. You know, domestic abuse is not about rage or someone being unable to control their anger. It is in fact, most often about power and control over one specific person or one set of people, or it's about a kind of inability to access one's own emotional constellation. In other words, one researcher that I have in the book, Neil Websdale, puts it more eloquently than I could when he says that for a lot of these guys, their partner inhabits the world of emotion that they cannot, that they cannot access. It's again, one of the ways that the patriarchy fails both men and women. Um, and I, I thought think that quote was really important because it yeah. reflected on something that I've talked to a lot of men about that isn't really to do with domestic violence, but ge- a general sense about the fact that, you know, all the way that we talk a lot about female socialization and the problems of that and kind of girls being taught to be, you know, sweet and kind and quiet and compliant. But this idea that, you know, the, the kind of boys don't cry stuff is so unbelievably harmful and, and benefits such a tiny proportion of, of men that you know that you do i think it i think it's something that but the, the problem is it's almost impossible to talk about because i think it's not really one that the feminist movement can tackle right it's something that men have to ta- talk to other men about yeah yeah i think i think 
I think you're right. I think the more the feminist movement talk about it, maybe the more we <laughs> we we get pushback. But but I do think it's and, and I don't exactly know how it started. Like it's it seems to me in some ways there's something sort of new about it, and I haven't been able to kind of like pinpoint what it is that feels new, right? Like what are the ways in which um, it feel, and maybe, maybe it's that there's this normalization that has happened in recent years of what I would have thought was sort of fringe elements of misogyny. And I'm, I'm talking here about things like the incel movement, you know, the involuntary celibate movement where these guys leave these long diatribes of why they, you know, why they killed because they were owed something by women and, and women wouldn't grant that to them. You know, people like Elliot Roger in California, or I forget the guy's name in Canada. It's Alex Manassian, I think, or something. Yes, 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 thank you. And I I think you're right that, that you know, it needs to be tackled by men. It's one of the reasons, you know, the actor Terry Crews, I don't know if you know who he is. He's on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and America's Got Talent. He's pretty big in America and he's this big very muscly African-American man, former football player. He's always sort of jumping up in the air on red carpets (laughs) doing this, like, I don't know, this kind of power jump, but he's a huge advocate because he grew up in a home with his abusive father. And he also fits that stereotype of what a man is supposed to be big, powerful, successful, strong. Um, And he told me a story not long ago where after he had had some success and he was a professional football player, he went back home to Detroit to visit his parents where he was from and he saw his mother and he could see that his mother had just been beaten by his father. He could see injuries on her and he went to his father and he beat the crap out of him. He said, Mm -hmm. I'd waited my whole life to be big enough and strong enough to just give him what he had given to us for so many years. And I beat him up. And then I went back to my hotel and I felt terrible. And I realized that violence could never solve the problem of violence. Mm. It was such a stunning story. And I think, you know, that's the kind of conversation that we need men to be having. Yeah, I'm a, a devotee of a, a British television show called SAS Who Dares Wins, which is, a, you know, one of those like reality shows where basically people have to crawl over unpleasant bogs or in the pouring rain while lifting huge weights above their heads. But one of the really interesting things about it is that all the guys who do it are all special forces soldiers, right? And the equivalent of Marines, I guess, in the US. Uh, yeah, um, and, you know, they will talk about their PTSD or their suicide attempts, you know, the fact that, that one, you know, growing up in care and, and what that does to you not not having a family or what it's like to kind of get into a gang really early and and for them the you know the army obviously provided some stability and and support and kind of you know but equally well there are those of them who again were very scarred by their experiences with it and I thought you know this is kind of what we need because it's you know it's it, it, the kind of feminized approach to it is not going to get through to exactly the kind of people who need to hear these messages they need to hear it yeah. from huge yeah. guys who could kill people with their thumb like th- those yeah. are the people who can this is this talk is about it. But my ex-husband is retired British commando from special forces and he trained not not trained with but trained the SAS and the SBS. So he is one of those guys and I remember being very struck when we when we were first dating and we first met 
because he would always talk about how he'd be on like jungle warfare training or Arctic training, but they'd always stop for their tea break. And I thought that was like so charming and so British. And so I was like, oh, he's not like those, these American commando guys, you know, who, who are all tough and whatever. And there is, I think there is, there is an element of that, that, that I think America suffers from that even more than Britain does. Um, but I also saw as the years stacked up, I saw that same thing where it was like this disconnect from your emotional core and who you really are as a human. And it's, you know, it, it it's a sort of form of almost like self-isolation, in fact, mm. can't connect to other people emotionally. And it does a great, a great disservice. The other strand of the book in terms of what we can take away apart from changing systems and processes like that is is perpetrator programs and actually changing them and you have this great question from neil webster you know we, we asked why don't victims leave perhaps we should ask why do abusers stay mm-hmm. what are you know what what are the interventions that work to make people be in control of their emotions and be and, and be able to stop themselves from hurting people around them you know i think that that's a complicated question because as a social science, you know, abusers intervention has been around for 30 years, maybe to greater or lesser degree. In the UK, you have a, you have a better system in some sense, you have a national organization of that kind of accredits abusers intervention Mm -hmm. programs. We don't have that in the States. So our approach is very ad hoc. And like, you might get like some element in some program on the West coast that seems to work well. And then some element in some program in Kansas that works well. So I don't yet know that there is like comprehensive science that is able to answer that question. But I will say that generally speaking, what I've seen, the programs that really work best are programs that are, that are long, right? Not anger management, 12 weeks and you're done kind of programs, but like year long programs, Programs where um, the abusers are given some kind of sense of agency. I know I use that word a lot, but there's a Mm -hmm. program, for example, in Wisconsin, where even if a man is referred by the court to have to attend this program, during their intake, they have to write 10 reasons why the program is 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 or is not suited for them. So in other words, they can opt out even though it's court ordered, but they'll have to go back to court, right? And they'll end up probably going to jail like if they don't want to go through the program. But what they say is, and I just talked to the facilitator of this program, what they say is it's the first time, you know, so many of these men are they get caught in the system and then they're in the system for years, right? Mm. Um, they have maybe a violation or the order of protection violation or they, you know, whatever, maybe they have a, a violent, an assault charge and a drug charge or whatever it is. And they've lost their own ability to control anything about their life. So this is the first kind of attempt that they're getting control back. So that's another thing. I think gender education is a big part of it. You know, for me, when I was researching the book, one of the things that was so interesting was seeing men suddenly realize that they lived according to a culture that had expectations for their behavior. They were like, oh yeah, I'm not allowed to cry. Oh yeah, men are portrayed in this one specific way in Hollywood movies or whatever, right? That's a big learning curve for them. And then the the final thing I'll say is very often when they have children, that's when they see the cycle 
perpetrated. That's when they see that they have become the fathers they never wanted to be. You know, they've become their own fathers and they're, they're imparting that into their children. So I think it's a, it's a multi tentacled approach. I was interested that you talk about one perpetrator program having, you know, a male and a female facilitator. So people can see this is what it looks like when men and women relate to each other as equals. And then also this idea that you have to use your partner's name, which came across in a, uh, when I talked to people in a perpetrator program that, you know, you were, you were never allowed to call her like the woman or my wife or the missus or whatever it was. You had to, co- you had to constantly remind yourself that she was an independent person with an identity of her own. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, just small things like that are become so meaningful. You know, you hear words all the time. My woman, my, my, you know, the missus is, I think, a big UK one. And it does dehumanize someone to, to some extent. Language really matters. I mean, one of the fascinating moments for me sitting in on the particular program you're talking about was having these guys... You would, you, you would have one guy in a circle who would be kind of deconstructing a moment of violence, a single moment of violence. And it would take hours because they would deconstruct not only the words that were said and analyze those words, but also the body language. So it, it, for so many of these guys, it's the first time they realized what they looked like to their wife or their partner or their children, right? they their muscles are clenched. Their eyes are kind of wild. They had, they're hunched over in this like posture of like absolute tension. And so, and you don't have to be like a big muscly guy to have that body posture feel intimidating. And, Mm. you know, all of these things, I had one guy tell me once he, once he did that exercise and learned what he looked like physically, whenever he would feel himself And that anger kind of rising up in him, he would just take a step backwards. It was like enough to kind of like reset the neural pathway in his brain to say, don't step into the violence, step out of the violence. It was fascinating. That is fascinating. Um, I I have to ask because... I think very reasonably the book is focused on male violence towards women. It's the, you know, in terms of homicides, certainly that is the overwhelming pattern that there is. What do we know about violence in same-sex relationships and female violence towards men? You know, it's interesting. I just interviewed like two days ago, the guy who runs the respect line in the UK, which is your abuser's Mm. prevention line. We don't have that in the States. I've been trying to advocate it for a long time, but you know, we, we, we have prison here is what we do. <laughs> we, and then when you get out of prison, you, you know, you just right away buy 15 guns or something like that. But <laughs> so he was saying to me, I asked him how, what percentage of calls he got that came from women. And he said it was about 15%, which tracks with what the, what domestic violence stats look like, which is that about 85% of victims tend to be women. You know, what we know in same-sex relationships is that, first of all, the research is, there's a, just a dearth of research. There needs to be more research on it. It's, it's relatively new, right? Only the, the past 10 or 15 years that we've even looked at LGBTQ relationships. But the stats tend to be about the same, and they tend to be a little higher in men's, you know, men's homosexual relationships versus women's lesbian relationships that, Mm. that more men are beating up, you know, their male partners than women beat up their female partners, which is not to say that it doesn't 
occur everywhere and in every constellation. I think that for men who are victims, there's an extra kind of added, you know, shame component to it where, you know, they've got society telling them, you know, you should be strong, you should be this, you should be that. And so there's, there's, they're under-resourced and there's also just a lack of knowledge about what it means to be a male victim of domestic violence. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there is that that extra problem. You know, being a minority in any situation, the whole system isn't built for you. But also that idea that, you know, this, how did you let this happen? She's just a woman, you know, and I think that that is a really powerful problem too. But, I, you know, I loved the book. I thought it was heartbreaking to read. And I also thought that the, the, the fact that you focus so much on on stories and kind of get to the messy complexity of people's lives. And you make, you know, you, you make it, uh, it, the reader understand how hard it is to kind of judge whether or not people have changed, you know, put yourself in the situation of these people trying to work out the levels of danger. It's such an imprecise science and, and getting it wrong has such incredibly high costs that I, th- I thought it was a, w- a wonderful book. So thank you very much, Rachel, for talking to us. And the book is No Visible Bruises. What we don't know about domestic violence can kill us. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.